0: In 1896, a full year before J.J. Thompson would announce his discovery of electrons, the strange properties of uranium were discovered when the scientist Henri Bacquerel, in an attempt to perform research on x-rays, had left a few fragments of the mineral in a drawer alongside some photographic film. He later developed the film and found to his surprise that the film looked as though it had been exposed to strong sunlight, despite the fact that the film had only been left in a dark drawer. Like a good scientist, he realized that the anomaly should be investigated. And after looking into it, he concluded that there was something unique about this mineral. With his characteristic curiosity, he set to work examining the mineral's mysteries. It seemed to emit invisible energetic rays, which would eventually be called radioactivity. Two years later, in the year 1898, the great scientists Marie and Pierre Curie stood before a boiling vat of mysterious uranium-containing substance called pitchblende. For years, they had been boiling this sludgy concoction of radioactive metals. In the end, they held in their burned, unprotected hands a new element to add to the periodic table, radium, which glowed a pale green in the dark. This discovery would earn the Curies, along with Henri Bacquerel, the 1903 Nobel Prize for Physics. With this award, Marie Curie would become the first woman to earn this distinguished award. She would go on to win a second Nobel Prize, but in a separate scientific field of chemistry in 1911, cementing her position as one of the world's great scientists and begin her family's legacy of five individual Nobel Prizes. Although Pierre Curie would die tragically in a horse-drawn carriage accident, Marie would continue the work with her students and her daughter Irene. The element radium would prove to be an indispensable asset to scientific research, and it soon became a valuable commodity, not least of which because of radium bromide's remarkable green glow. Before much was known about radiation, people were far less careful than they are now, since the harmful effects of radiation often take years to fully manifest. Marie Curie would carry vials of radium with her in her pocket, and kept them in her desk drawer. Because of their levels of radioactive contamination, her papers from the 1890s are considered, to this day, too dangerous to handle. Even her cookbook is highly radioactive. Her papers are kept in lead-lined boxes, and those who wish to consult them must wear protective clothing. Marie Curie would die at the age of 66 from the long-term effects of exposure to radiation, the dangers of which little were known in the early 20th century. In fact, a glass cylinder of radium crystals was once placed directly into the hands of Kaiser Wilhelm as a gift. If someone today tried giving a gift of that sort to a head of state, he would be tackled and unceremoniously hauled off to prison. E is equal to mc squared. A very small amount of mass may be converted into a very large amount of energy. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Everyone who lived through it agreed that the summer of 1914, immediately before the outbreak of World War I, was one of the most pleasant and peaceful summers in memory. In those days, the powers of Europe were entwined and opposed in a complicated web of interlocking alliances, pacts, and agreements. National pride, combined with sentiments of cultural superiority and bravado, made the numerous international actors almost eager to display their new strength in an international conflict. On June 28, 1914, Gavrilo Princip, a Serbian nationalist, assassinated Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke and the presumptive heir of the crown of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The assassin's country of Serbia was a vassal of the empire, and Princip hoped that Ferdinand's assassination might unite Yugoslavians to rise up and gain independence from Austria-Hungary. The assassination would be the spark that ignited the keg of dynamite that was Europe. Austria would move to crush Serbia, but then the Russian Empire would intervene on behalf of the Serbians, with whom they shared a similar language and religious faith. Then the German Empire, an ally of Austria, would seize the opportunity to enter the war and promptly invade Belgium. And on and on it went, until the dominoes of France, Britain, and Italy their allies would fall into the fray. Finally, even the United States would become embroiled in the First Great World War. That great war would serve as a stage for newly developed military weapons and technologies, revealing horrors the likes of which had never before been seen on the face of the earth. The belligerents wielded the refined discipline of chemistry, a subject used by man to bend matter to his own will, to wreak destruction across the lands of Europe. The German Empire had, less than a half century before, united a number of smaller kingdoms and duchies of loosely Germanic ethnicity into a single monolithic nation state under the dominion of the Kaiser. The German Empire of World War I was also known as the Second Reich, the First Reich being the Holy Roman Empire of the Middle Ages. Despite all of them being ostensibly German, the citizens of these diverse kingdoms, principalities, and territories often had widely different cultures, and in some cases, different languages. The new empire also struggled against religious tensions and proletariat uprisings. Because of these challenges, the various emperors, chancellors, and ministers of the German Empire set in motion a Germanization of their vast domain, with a cultural struggle to unify the multitude of subcultures, legal systems, and nationalities. To accomplish this, they endeavored to instill a deep sense of German ethnic identity and superiority. The leadership of the German state also resisted the expansion of the personal freedoms of the citizens, choosing instead to intensify authoritarian control over their lives and to expand paternalistic welfare programs to discourage individuality and to ensure the reliance of the German citizens upon their government. Once the citizens of Germany relied on these welfare programs, it was only inevitable that any collapse of the German government would be a disaster for all Germans. The power of the unified German Empire surged during the period before the Great War. By 1914 it had swelled into an intellectual, industrial, agricultural, and military powerhouse. By the outbreak of World War I, the scientific community of the German Empire had accumulated more Nobel Prizes than any other country up to that point, and had an economy bigger than both Britain and France, second only to the United States. World War I would become a war like none other before. The gruesome and unending horrors experienced by the soldiers in the trenches of the no man's land hellscape would haunt the memories of Europeans and Americans for the span of a generation. It is possible that perhaps nobody could be assigned more blame for those horrors than the German chemist, Fritz Haber. There's no doubt that Haber was a great chemist. In 1910, just four years before the outbreak of World War I, Fritz Haber had helped to invent the Haber-Bosch process for the industrial synthesis of ammonia. The production of ammonia could then be used to synthesize countless useful chemicals, most notably fertilizer. The Chemical reaction is remarkably simple. It combines hydrogen gas, which can be obtained from petroleum and nitrogen gas, which can be obtained directly from the atmosphere. And in the presence of an iron catalyst at a high pressure, high temperature chamber, it can produce ammonia in copious quantities. The Haber-Bosch process must be acknowledged for its immense positive impact on humanity and is still used to this day in a modified form to synthesize ammonia. It is estimated that without the fertilizer generated using this process, the world would only be able to produce enough crops to feed approximately 100 million people, only a fraction of the seven or eight billion alive today. But ammonia is not only a critical ingredient for fertilizer, it is also a critical ingredient to produce the nitrates used in explosives and munitions. Before Haber's invention, the majority of nitrates were mined from the ground, with the greatest sources of mined nitrates being located at the tip of South America, under the direct control of the British Empire. This gave Britain a dedicated strategic advantage on the world stage. Upon the outbreak of war, the British wisely denied the German Empire shipments of the nitrates, critical to the production of munitions and explosives needed for the ensuing war. As a result, Dr. Haber helped the Germans ramp up the production of alternative sources of ammonia to industrial levels, which could then be used to produce the bullets, tank and artillery shells, grenades, mortars, and bombs used in the ensuing war. With the nitrates problem sufficiently solved, Dr. Haber turned his attentions to another weapon of war, poison gas. World War I was not the first war that poison gas was considered. During the American Civil War, for instance, one individual wrote a letter to Lincoln's Secretary of War, which contained the designs for a repurposed artillery shell that would contain not explosives, but corrosive chlorine gas. After the shell had been fired into the trenches where the enemy would be otherwise reasonably protected from gunfire, the shell's lid would open and begin to spew noxious fumes. The letter indicated that chlorine gas, being heavier than air, would seep through the trenches, choking the defenders and driving them out into the open where gunfire could easily pick them off. Despite the visionary design, the Union War Department placed the letter and the designs for the poison gas artillery shell into a pile of letters of harebrained schemes that the Secretary of War received by the thousands. The letter was forgotten for the duration of the Civil War. Chlorine gas was also the first choice for poison gas used by the Germans in World War I. However, its usefulness was limited. Upon exposure to the gas, the soldiers would immediately feel its noxious choking effects in their lungs and would jump out of the trenches, where they could be picked off one by one by machine gunfire. The militaries quickly learned and issued rubber gas masks for their soldiers to pull over their faces the moment any indication that a gas attack was presented. So Dr. Haber and his team soon produced a more insidious poison gas, phosgene. Unlike chlorine, phosgene gas was not immediately corrosive. Containing the faint aroma of freshly cut hay, one or two breaths of phosgene was all that was needed to cause the accumulation of acid deep within the human lungs, which would bring death in a matter of hours. The use of poison gas enraged the Allies, especially the French, who, lacking the technology to produce a truly effective poison gas, fired canisters of cyanide into the German trenches out of pure hatred. This attempt was almost completely ineffectual, as cyanide gas is lighter than air, and it quickly dissipated out of the trenches and into the atmosphere. But soon the French learned how to make phosgene gas of their own. The worst gas of all arrived in 1917. The Germans began to rain into the Allied trenches, shells marked with a yellow cross. Mustard gas. It was named for its faint mustard or horseradish like smell. But if you were exposed to mustard gas in sufficient enough concentrations that you could smell it, you were a dead man. Once exposed, the mustard gas would begin to blister your skin. Your eyelids would burn and swell shut. Gas masks could be used against chlorine, phosgene, and other gases, but mustard gas had the capability to dissolve rubber and leather and soak through many layers of cloth. Contaminated soldiers could carry it in their clothing in sufficient concentrations to blind an entire underground shelter of their comrades. Mustard gas could remain in a trench for weeks without dissolving or dissipating. Mustard gas was often mixed with other smells to mask its scent. For instance, it was mixed quite often and in macabre irony with the smell of lilac flowers. Clara, Fritz Haber's wife, brilliant scientist in her own right, spent the war neglected by her husband and overwhelmed with guilt the contribution of her husband's work to the suffering of thousands. She considered the research of poison gas as barbaric and a disgrace and a corruption of the discipline of chemistry. She went to her husband with an ultimatum, demanding that he abandon his research into the poison gas. Dr. Haber answered, "'A scientist belongs to the world in times of peace, "'but to his country in times of war.' Clara committed suicide that very night. Dr. Haber showed no remorse or even sadness for the death of his wife and returned to his work with the same dedication and zeal as before. In spite of the sacrifices of this one man and the combined efforts of tens of millions and the deaths of millions of its own soldiers, the strength of the Central Powers was not sufficient to overcome the strength of the Allied Powers especially with the entry of the United States into the war. In 1918, the government of Germany was overthrown. The Kaiser abdicated and fled the country, and the Germans offered to surrender, handing the victory to the Allies. But in hindsight, even in victory, the Allies made a number of key mistakes which made that victory appear weak and incomplete. For instance, when the German army offered its surrender, it was still deep in occupied French territory, Additionally, well before the Versailles Treaty was completed, the vast majority of the war-weary Allied soldiers had already left the battlefield and returned home. The tardy treaty burdened defeated Germany with difficult war reparations, a large loss of territory, and the humiliating accusations of a war guilt clause by the time it was signed by a much weaker, more contemptible adversary than they had faced in the moment when they had agreed to surrender. not so much that the war guilt and reparations were unusually harsh, which they weren't by prior standards of surrender, but rather it was the lack of resolve shown by the victors in this war to carry their victory to a decisive completion. We will return to this issue later, but it's worth noting for now that Hitler and the Nazis, who would soon rise to power, leveraged this bitter memory as justification for starting the Second World War and the Allies would learn the hard way that an incomplete victory ...is temporary victory. Very temporary. Adolf Hitler was the product of a broken family. He was physically abused by his stepfather. Neighbors in the town where Adolf grew up... ...would recall the screams coming from the house... ...day after day as the boy was beaten. At the same time, he was coddled and spoiled... ...in all the worst ways by his mother... Hitler was actually a fairly talented painter, but his dream to become an artist was thwarted as the Institute of the Fine Arts in Vienna rejected his application again and again. He fought in World War I and lost many of his close friends. He also suffered injuries from a mustard gas attack. The man was enraged at life, driven mad with fury at the unfair hand of fate that the universe had dealt him and his beloved homeland. It's hard to point to any one thing that could be the cause of the disappointment and sorrow that he and his fellow Germans had experienced. Some people experience great disappointment in life without becoming corrupted. In spite of all the evil they endure, they choose to do good with their lives, and in such a way they triumph in the midst of their struggles. Perhaps it is no surprise that some people succumb to hatred and bitterness with much trouble and sorrow in their lives, For some insightful watchers of the human experience, the true surprise, the true miracle, is when people rise above the evil that they have suffered and prevail by doing good in spite of it. But Hitler was not one of these. After the war, with the collapse of the German Empire, the lands of Germany were now governed by the bankrupt and ineffectual Weimar Republic. Although it was an attempt at democracy, the war guilt clause and the war reparations doomed the young republic to certain failure. The economic hardships suffered by the Germans during this time included hyperinflation of their national currency, where citizens' spending money became so worthless that it was cheaper to burn bundles of cash for heat in the winter than to buy coal or wood to keep their families warm. These circumstances afflicted the German people with a smoldering resentment, and the tiny blossoms of democracy in Germany were crushed before they could take root. With no better occupational prospects to pursue, Hitler stayed in the German military. His superiors assigned him to become an intelligence agent, a spy. They directed him to infiltrate the German Workers' Party in Munich, Bavaria, to report on their activities and determine whether they would be a threat to the state. Despite his duty to spy on this ominous group, he soon became more sympathetic and loyal to the German Workers' Party than to his own military. After Hitler joined the German Workers' Party, they decided to change their name to the National Socialist German Workers' Party. When written in German, the first letter of each word forms the initials NAZI. You may be surprised to hear that if you had called Hitler a Nazi to his face, he would have been highly offended. He would have preferred the title National Socialist. This was because Nazi was already a derogatory term in German society, denoting a Bavarian buffoon. The name Nazi was short for Ignatius, who was a character that served as a dolt and comic relief in German jokes and folk stories. It was actually Hitler's enemies, first in Germany and later in other nations of the world, who called the National Socialists Nazis. The German Workers' Party was comprised of a strange melange of people, including members of the occult, adherents to ancient Viking religions, and budding psychopaths. The group promoted the the stab-in-the-back myth, that traitors, Marxists, and especially Jews had undermined the German war efforts in World War I, and such deserved unforgivable blame for Germany's humiliating defeat. This was, of course, a myth. So that begs the question, why were Hitler and the Nazis so anti-Semitic, Why did they blame the Jews for their suffering and difficulty? To answer that question, it's worth considering why there were Jews in Europe in the first place. After the Romans burned the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, they scattered the Jews across the known world. European Jews are broadly split between two groups, the Sephardic Jews of Western Europe and Africa, primarily in Spain, and the Ashkenazi Jews, primarily in Eastern Europe. During medieval times, the Jews of Germany were often persecuted and treated shamefully. In contrast, the monarchs of Eastern Europe in regions such as Poland and Hungary needed more people to settle the vast, wild lands of their territories. For this reason, those kingdoms welcomed the Jews and treated them relatively well. This region was known as the Pale of Settlement, As these Jews left Germany, they continued to speak the Yiddish language, a form of ancient German mixed with Hebrew. At the outset of the Enlightenment age, with the spread of religious tolerance, the lives of the Jews improved substantially in most places in Europe. The Jews began to move around more freely outside their cloistered communities and became more involved within broader societies. Because of their tight-knit supportive communities, and because of the discipline and diligence promoted in their scriptures, those of Jewish descent began to thrive in the European communities into which they began to participate. Sometimes they were granted land and titles. Sometimes they operated successful businesses. They often rose to prominence in academic and political circles. Perhaps it was inevitable that the Jews' success would breed feelings of jealousy and resentment among the downtrodden Germans in the wake of World War I. In the late 1800s, a book emerged from somewhere in Russia called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. In this strange and Machiavellian book, The author lays out a completely fictional plan made by the Jews to take over and rule the world. The book starts out examining the weaknesses of democracy, and the Protocols book attacks liberalism in the classical sense. But what do I mean by classical liberalism? An example of the definition of a classical liberal is someone who holds these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Sound familiar? A classical liberal believes that government exists of the people, by the people, and for the people. He cherishes the First Amendment of the United States Bill of Rights, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, and freedom of assembly. It's Second Amendment, due process of law, the rule of law, separation of church and state, checks and balances of power, and the sovereignty of the individual. I consider myself a classical liberal, and I suspect that most of you who are listening would consider yourselves classical liberals as well. But the protocols of the elders of Zion attack such notions. Here's a quote from the document liberalism produced constitutional states and a constitution, as you well know, is nothing but a school of discords, misunderstandings, quarrels, disagreements, fruitless party agitations, party whims. We replaced the ruler by a caricature of government, by a president taken from the mob, in the midst of our puppet creatures, our slaves." Quote. Instead, this fictional plot to rule the world lays out a different system lays out a doctrine that the right to rule lies in the application of force. Any display of morality or honesty is nothing more than a weakness to be exploited to seize absolute control. Therefore the Protocols lay out a plan for the establishment of an autocratic world ruler, an absolute despot. They advocate the seizure of private property to be put towards the purposes of the all-powerful state. They promote the establishment of a state of terror to ensure the submission necessary to maintain power they prescribe a corruption of the press here's another quote violence must be the principle and cunning and make-believe the rule for governments which do not want to lay down their crowns we must not stop at bribery deceit and treachery when they should serve toward the attainment of our end end quote Additionally, the author of the protocols calls for the conscription of a significant portion of the population, up to one-third of them, to act as spies against their fellow citizens, so that all traces of opposition to the state may be searched out and eliminated. Another quote, Out of the temporary evil we are now compelled to commit will emerge the good of an unshakable rule, End quote. Adolf Hitler read the protocols during the formation of his ideology, and thought that the fictional plot laid out by the Jews in the book was real, and considered it to be a work of genius. The future leader of the Nazi party decided that he would use the ideas of this false conspiracy as the basis for his own approach to government. Although instead of the world being ruled by the Jewish race, as was laid out in the protocols, Hitler envisioned that the world would be ruled by the Aryan race. Adolf Hitler drew inspiration From these darkest of nightmares and made them into a reality. It was not long before his power and the power of the Nazis would rise sufficient to overtake all of continental Europe and their grip would only be loosened through defeat by the overwhelming force of the alliance between the Soviets and the Western democracies at a tremendous cost of lives. One final note about Fritz Haber. He continued his research in Germany after the First World War until the rise of the Nazis. Once they had seized power in Germany, Dr. Haber was forced to flee, because he and his family were the descendants of Jews. He ran away to Britain, and spent the few remaining days of his life despondent and confused, unable to understand how his own country of Germany, for which he had sacrificed his genius, his loyalty, his wife Clara, and so much of his life, would show no gratitude, but instead turn its back on him and banish him into exile. In perhaps the most ironic footnote to this scientist's list of scientific contributions, in his younger days, Dr. Haber had developed a pesticide called Zyklon A. This molecule would later be modified after Haber's death for use in the gas chambers of the Holocaust to eradicate more than one million people, including members of Dr. Haber's own family. For the reasons laid out in this story, When the name of Fritz Haber is spoken among those who are familiar with his role in the horrors of World War I and beyond, he is sometimes known by the title, The Damned Scientist. Next time on The Atomic Bomb. The incomplete victory of the Allies and the humiliation of the Germans sets the stage for Hitler and the Nazis to rise to power and sets the Holocaust into motion. Hundreds of brilliant scientists like Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, and Enrico Fermi flee from the Nazi threat engulfing Europe to seek refuge in the United States. Soon thereafter, a new discovery shocks the scientific community and opens the door to the possibility of a vast new source of power and an agent of immense destruction. Thanks for listening. The Atomic Bomb Podcast was written, presented, and edited by me, Lane Vatopka. Special thanks for edits by Gary Vatopka. Original logo and banner by Inova Enterprise. Additional credits and licensing information can be found in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider engaging in further discussion or making a donation at my thinkspot.com page. Username LVatopka, spelled L-V-O-T-A-P-K-A. You can also donate or subscribe at buymeacoffee.com slash lvotapka. Copyright Lane Vitopka, 2021.